Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome back to another edition of More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay. With me, as always, our stalwart group, Dr. Natalie Alinos. Good morning. And Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, good morning to you. And joining us a bit later in our program, Representative Jeff Roy. We have a guest. Our guest is someone who is no stranger to change. And the theme of this program, I think, today is the times they are a-changing at far faster rates than any of us anticipated. Our incredibly competent, able, super-powered school superintendent, Sarah Ahern, is with us this morning. Good morning, Sarah. Morning. And we are going to take a look back and a look forward, uh, a look back at you know the few years that she has been with us and, quite frankly, obviously challenging to, <laughs> to underplay it. Uh, and, and she has obviously... Uh, ushered us through all of that very capably and where we think we're headed. And so that said, we have much to discuss and uh, perhaps begin to illuminate, notably for the schools, what a new normal down the road might begin to look like. Uh, And of course, as with all the rest of our lives, that's very much in flux. And so with that, good morning to all. And I open the floor. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Mike. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, uh, start. First off, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day, Dr. Hearn, and and joining us here. Uh, And we hope we don't put you on the spot, uh, because I know there are a lot of things on the district that are in flux. And our intention here is basically to sort of get your insights into your perspectives about where things are going uh, and how we're doing in Franklin. Uh, As you know, we have had some uh, what I would say, uh, some provocative times in the last uh, eight to 10 months. Uh, plus, we've had the uh, pandemic, which continues to rear its ugly head, uh, which then brings with it uh, thoughts about vaccinations, now thoughts about uh, masks, etc. So maybe you might want to take a couple of minutes and sort of just give us your overview. Uh, how are we doing here in Franklin? Um, thank you for, for asking that question, and thank you for inviting me in. I'm happy to share um, how we're doing at Franklin uh, in the Franklin Public Schools. I think that um, if I could you know, sort of capture the big idea or the big picture here um, is that uh, at this moment in time, I think people are um, doing as, as we are on this radio show, reflecting on the past 20 months or so. Uh, both individually and collectively, um, while also coming to terms with the current moment. Uh, there was so much optimism over the summer, uh, optimism with vaccines coming out last spring, optimism with COVID case counts dropping, 
um, relaxed mask requirements and um, the Delta variant through everybody a curveball. Um, and so we're back in school uh, full time and in person, and we're so happy to have all of the students back, all of the faculty and staff back. Um, but it's not quite as optimistic as I think everybody had hoped. Uh, and so people are really grappling with grappling with the current uh, current situation. And um, you know, fortunately, we have a tremendous amount of support from our state and from the federal government in terms of additional funds uh, to be able to support uh, students um, with their academic needs and with their social and emotional needs, um, but that it's not easy at, by, by any stretch. Um, so that's kind of currently where we are. Um, these certainly have been um, provocative times um, and uh, we're remaining committed though to the foundation that we've established. Um, we have a mission and a vision. We have our portrait of a graduate. We have um, set some long-term goals uh, around curriculum instruction, uh, social emotional well-being and communication, and we remain committed to those. And they really serve as our compass, um, as our guidepost, um, so that we're uh, making sure that we're attending to, to what the students need. It's been uh, a hard year, and I'm, I'm going to jump in as a and actually a hard few years as a mother of, of three young kids. Um, I don't live in Franklin, so superintendent, you're not my superintendent, but here in Brookline, we have the same challenges and the socio-emotional piece and the mental health piece is, is really on top of everyone's mind. My third grader, I mean, if I reflect, she had an interrupted first grade, fully hybrid second grade, and now she's in third grade and is struggling. You know, she was already a little bit, I think she's dyslexic, so was having a hard time reading, and now she's in third grade and not a reader, and that is concerning uh, to me, but I'm sure she's not alone. Uh, of course, my top priority isn't whether she's reading or not, is whether she's happy, whether she's healthy. I'm so excited that she is eligible for the vaccine um, now, because I think many parents who want to vaccinate their children, and I hope many will, um, have been waiting for this day, so it's but it's, it's difficult. And our superintendent actually sent a letter to everyone um, a couple of days ago talking about sort of the, the challenges, the morning. And, you know, I'm, I'm a public health person and I've been looking at the data of how many children have lost primary caregivers and the inequities around that at the national level. Uh, it's a tremendous number. Uh, one in five, I think, is the number that has lost a significantly close person, either a parent, a grandparent, a close uncle. And so, the long-term impact on schools, on both the educational sort of challenges ahead and the emotional, I, I don't envy where you are because, you know, this was, for the last 20 months have put public health, I think, in the front kind of seat, but now I think it's going to shift to things like schools and workplaces to carry us forward to make sure that we, we recover. So it's wonderful to have you on today, and I speak both in my personal mom capacity and as an, and as an epidemiologist that I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you. I um, might be able to jump in there on a couple of the, the things that you've touched upon um, on both the social, emotional, and also academic realm. Um, one of the things that we're working really hard to do is to understand with um, you know, both, both our own observations as well as some objective measures uh, how students are doing and how they're doing compared to uh, some norms so that we can apply uh, appropriate strategies and interventions. We've really expanded you know, our assessment toolkit 
at the elementary level, we're using something called the Devereaux Student Strengths Assessment. It had been um, part of the district for a couple of years in several of the elementary schools, and we're expanding it across all five schools. Um, and this is uh, a rating scale that teachers complete on social emotional competencies. And uh, every student has um, is, is rated with a screener, a seven question screener. And then um, any student who meets a certain threshold on that rating scale then gets a, a more in-depth um, assessment by the teacher. One of the things that's great about the DESA uh, is that it also comes with resources that the teachers can apply based on what the lagging skills are. And so uh, it's, it, it kind of combines, um, combines both the assessment as well as a toolkit. And because we had it in the district um, on a pilot basis, there are some uh, teachers that have worked and culled through a wealth of resources to determine what might be uh, the best fit and the best match. Um, we're also moving towards um, a assessment and a screener that does also come with some, some tools for teachers for our grades um, six through 12 students. Uh, it's a different assessment um, through Panorama, which is a well-regarded uh, company that is being used successfully in other districts. We have used them to survey teachers on teacher well-being and their experience of school culture. And now we're going to expand that to students uh, to get an understanding of school culture as well as um, social emotional competencies. And that is a student self-assessment. So um, rather than a teacher rating scale, uh, the students um, are able to complete it themselves and that will give us uh, some information and some tools to respond. Um, this will, I think, be more comprehensive. We certainly have our student support teams uh, actively running to, uh, to talk about student needs, and uh, our educators are doing that uh, anyway, but this will be much more comprehensive and much more universal. Um, we are also doing something similar K-8 to for academics in both uh, English language arts and reading and mathematics. Um, they, uh, it's a nonprofit group. Um, I don't remember what it stands for, it's, but it's NWEA, and they have um, they have some academic assessments, and they're done electronically. What I like about these assessments, um, they're highly regarded. They're um, recommended tools that the Department of Education has endorsed. They are adaptive, so. Um, we have the ability to really see how far um, students can go with certain skills um, and it targets the questions in kind of a just right um, just right mode so if a student is doing well and getting lots of questions right it gives them more challenging questions and more challenging questions and more challenging questions and there's no ceiling uh, so we can see um, you know how some of our advanced learners are doing um, and then similarly if a student is struggling with the questions it'll um, give them uh, a question at a lower at a lower skill level um, to really dial in um, with, with greater clarity on the students' reading uh, and, and math skills. And that's uh, allowing us to apply a whole host of interventions, whether that's directly in the classroom by the teacher, or uh, if one of our interventionists um, might pick up the student to provide some, uh, some extra support so that the students um, can, can maximize their learning. Um, one of the big things that we're focusing on academically uh, is making sure that uh, students continue to learn at their grade level. Um, we uh, know that uh, kind of our traditional forms of remediation don't help to uh, catch kids up and close 
uh, those skill gaps. So what we're uh, aiming to do is um, this, uh, this thing called learning acceleration, which um, I, I don't know, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer perhaps, um, or, or might be misinterpreted, but I think although, um, for example, your, your daughter's in third grade and had disrupted learning in first and second grade, we want to make sure that students are learning that third grade material, but that we're providing um, in interventions for any grade one or grade two skills that they need, but make sure that they're staying on, on third grade uh, material, um, because that's going to set them up well for the long term. Sarah, I want to say it's uh, great to see you here today. Uh, it's always great to see you and, and uh, you know, what you just outlined uh, about uh, supports and, and innovative things that you were doing, I think really encapsulates the great work that you have been doing uh, here in Franklin since you arrived. And uh, I'm so thrilled that the community delivered you a wonderful uh, school committee that uh, you can work with for the next two years and uh, brought many smiles to many faces. Uh, when the election results were returned. And uh, so I wish you the best over the next two years. One of the things I would love uh, if you could uh, share with uh, our audience um, one of the exciting initiatives I know that you worked on and, and got a lot of community feedback on was establishing the portrait of the graduate. And uh, just if you could outline what that is all about and why you did it. And uh, it's uh, a great concept. And uh, I think more people should hear about it. Sure. Um, so I'm glad that you asked uh, the question. The Portrait of a Graduate was a visioning process that we started before the pandemic. Um, so in my first year, we established uh, a strategy for district improvement, but left the vision statement alone because we wanted to take some more time uh, with the community to and the school committee uh, to come up with this consensus vision for the skills that our students will need in the future. Under the premise that, um, and going back to something that, that Pete had mentioned in the opening, that things are moving very, very fast. Uh, I feel like the, the, the pace of change has um, picked up within the last year um, incredibly dramatically. And with that change, uh, we're preparing students for a future that is not like not like the current situation. Uh, they're going to be in jobs that we can't even imagine or aren't even imagining now. So we need to give them a set of skills and make sure that they're departing with a set of skills that are adaptable um, and uh, leaving them for success for a, a rapidly advancing uh, inter uh, interdependent world. And uh, so we worked with the community uh, through a series of focus groups, uh, the administrative team, uh, all of the faculties at all of our school buildings participated. We had uh, several community focus groups that included uh, people who work in, in, in Franklin, uh, business officials, uh, elected officials. We had uh, some representatives from higher education joining us and some community organizations. And what we did was through these focus groups, develop a community consensus of essential skills that we, um, that we are committed to um, supporting students in um, pre-K through 12. So this isn't just about the high school, this is about all of the learning experiences pre-K through 12 that are going to prepare students for their future. The work was done pre-pandemic um, and then the pandemic hit. Um, we were we were ready to uh, to kind of put it forward to the school committee for adoption that uh, that spring, uh, but the pandemic um, hit. Um, 
which was a really interesting, uh, really interesting reflection and exercise for us when we came back um, to what ended up being hybrid learning in the fall of 2020. Um, we asked ourselves, does this still fit? Do these essential skills still fit? And the steering committee felt that they're more important now than ever. And we put it forward to the school committee for adoption and they adopted it in the fall of 2020. Um, just to talk a little bit more uh, concretely about what those skills are, um, they, there are five and it includes a confident and self-aware individual, an empathetic and productive citizen, curious and creative thinker, effective communicator and collaborator, and a reflective and innovative problem solver. And embedded in those skills, we fleshed out some additional ideas from the community about uh, things that they would hope to see. They include all sorts of literacies. So I think oftentimes we think of literacy in, in terms of English language arts, uh, but uh, people recognize that financial literacy and digital literacy, media literacy is important uh, for students to be learning. Um, social emotional skills uh, are embedded in there in terms of our confident and self-aware individuals, things like self-awareness and self-management. In the citizen realm, we talk so much about civics and we have um, more civics education embedded, not only in our eighth grade uh, devoted civics course, but also in other uh, social studies classes. Uh, actually, at all grades, there's a, a civics theme. Um, and, so, and so social awareness, inclusivity, uh, and the consideration of various perspectives are embedded in the empathetic and productive citizen uh, skill, uh, as well as contributing to local, global, and environmental solutions, um, and understanding that lessons from, uh, from history should help inform uh, our approach to contemporary situations. Curious and creative thinkers, um, we, need, uh, we need to make sure that we're tapping into the inherent curiosity of children. Um, I think that the most curious uh, students we have come in to us as pre-K or kindergartners, uh, make sure we're tapping into that throughout their, uh, their time with us um, so that um, they continue to ask important questions and uh, dive in to find those answers and um, use the resources um, creatively uh, to, come up with, uh, to come up with solutions effective communicators and collaborators. Uh, the demands on communication, I think, are greater now than ever. Uh, and so uh, we wanna make sure that students are uh, effectively communicating um, using uh, multiple strategies, uh, making sure that they have a variety of ways that they're conveying their ideas. Um, but we also, uh, within this skill, start with listening, making sure that uh, we're developing listening skills as well and students um, are embracing uh, a respectful, inclusive, and culturally aware approach uh, as they uh, listen, um, which we know uh, is so important. And then lastly, reflective and innovative problem solvers. Um, there are uh, no, uh, there's no lack of um, problems uh, to tackle, um, big problems to tackle, and I think our students um, are going to be well positioned uh, to help, help us solve uh, our challenges. Um, that we face. And so we are excited about this framework. Um, it grounds us uh, in the work that we do. And uh, now we're really actively uh, working towards making sure that the learning experiences that students have in classrooms are aligned to this vision. Let me ask you, because there, uh, what you just outlined, I would hope that any of the 
thousands of school districts that we have in this country would see as a positive kind of demonstration to the community about the role of pre-K-12 helping to develop a well-rounded individual coming out of our public school system. And yet, uh, I've got to ask a couple of questions because, one, it seems to me everything you said uh, regarding these competencies can lead us toward not only a better understanding of each other, a better understanding of what it means for me to be a team player, whether it's in the community or at work, but also a better person who's tolerant of the different perspective and views, not only existing in my community, but out there in the world. And as you know, these types of demonstrations of not only tolerance, but also the development of the kinds of perspective you just described have become political footballs. Uh, now, I, now I, I know you did not use any of the sort of uh, catchphrases that are instant uh, grenades. You didn't use the term inclusion, but I heard it. You didn't use the term diversity, but I heard it. You were very uh, emphatic about listening skills, uh, which I also happen to believe is one of the core skills that any student or any of us as citizens ought to have, and that is the ability to be able to listen with uh, deep listening and understanding. Uh, and our community embraced this, which for me is just a wonderful, I think, uh, uh, it, it, it just a wonderful treatise on how this community, I think, goes beyond or tries to go beyond uh, some of the external political kinds of games that are being played. Was your experience in, in terms of putting this together, especially pre-pandemic and then bringing it up post-pandemic and then having it adopted by the school committee, were there any naysayers? Um, and I don't mean naysayers in the total negative sense, but people who may have had some concerns and how were those addressed? Uh, and then was it a diverse group of the community? Uh, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear you <laughs> describe it. Was the, uh, 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 was the community, of uh, the developmental community who put this together, both the teachers and all of the others, what is, uh, was it a recognizable, diverse group? So um, that's a great question uh, in terms of uh, how this came to be and how it was put together. I talked about the focus groups um, and I talked a lot about the roles that different people had in coming together and, uh, and putting this together. What I should also add is that drafts of this were sent out to the community, I think twice uh, for more global feedback um, for people to kind of review and provide some, some information. Um, we also shared it with our parent groups, uh, like our parent communication councils, and we also shared it with our um, special education parent advisory council. So we had some input and feedback um, from those groups as well. In terms of uh, the diversity uh, question, I'll start with the special education um, parent advisory council, as well as some of the special educators who uh, either work in the district or um, have uh, some, some deep knowledge around special education um, and, and participated in a focus group. Um, that was an area that um, 
that we talked about a lot uh, to make sure that these skills are something that we are uh, developing for all students and all children. And uh, some folks had reflected that that we needed to make sure that we were being intentional in thinking about students with special needs, particularly those that remain with us beyond graduation. We do have some students who are with us until they uh, turn 22 or for, for a year or two after um, they otherwise would have graduated high school. And so that was a, a really important point and a really important lens around which, um, around which we took a look um, at the portrait of a graduate and made some, uh, some changes and, and kind of iterated the language that was used in terms of the skills. I think, um, you know, in full transparency and, and some vulnerability here, I think if we were to go about doing this again, I think we would have been more intentional about having um, more racial diversity and seeking that out and being um, really um, more inclusive in that regard in terms of putting the portrait of a graduate together. Uh, I think uh, the the group that uh, the groups that we put together uh, and had working on this uh, came with, I think, a, a value and belief uh, system that um, attending to uh, racial and ethnic diversity, as well as socioeconomic diversity, is also something uh, that was important. And so you see those pieces embedded in uh, the skills um, that are outlined in the portrait of a graduate. We did have some focus group members coming uh, with a background that in terms of educational diversity, uh, you know, did not necessarily have a, a doctorate, for example. Um, and so that brought another perspective too, in terms of um, you know, people who were uh, weighing in on the portrait of a graduate who uh, maybe had uh, high school educations or a bachelor's, um, but did not necessarily, and I'm kind of acutely aware of, um, you know, kind of that educational uh, diversity and how that uh, manifests. And so that was something uh, that came up and we had some uh, good conversations and feedback and input uh, related related to that. I want to jump in uh, in terms of a national story. Last year, um, I uh, served, I served on a commission, a national commission with the National Conference of State Legislators on uh, student-based learning uh, and um, one of the things that we had emphasized in that uh, commission report and work that we did was this notion of a portrait of a graduate and uh, that it should be part of the national conversation. And it was much to my surprise when I heard uh, Sarah Ahern talking about portrait of graduate. We, we hadn't even had a conversation like this. And, and I remember reaching out to her and saying, you are so far ahead of the curve on this uh, particular conversation. And I'm thrilled that, uh, you know, here I am learning about all of this on this national commission that I'm doing. And right in my community, uh, a, a leader is uh, leading the charge to do this. So um, it is part of the recommendations that we uh, issued on a national level for uh, folks to include this uh, as part of a, a program that is. Uh, emphasizing, uh, you know, student-based learning uh, throughout the country. And, you know, we went all over. We, uh, I was surprised that one of the trips that they took us was to Idaho. And I'm like, uh, here I am from Massachusetts, which is number one in education uh, in the nation. And uh, they, they want to take me to Idaho to learn about uh, 
what things uh, can be done better in education. But uh, I will tell you, it was, it was eye-opening to see what some school districts are doing. And I'm thrilled that uh, some of this stuff is happening right here in Franklin. So getting back to the question about, you know, pushback, you know, certainly, or, or objections, there was certainly concern presented as the portrait of a graduate was being, was being put together around um, content knowledge and skills. Where's the content knowledge and skills? So I didn't read it, but there is a a bullet point in there around a confident and self-aware individual that, uh, that the individual, um, you know, through individual pursuits as well as uh, social pursuits in education are going to develop and apply content knowledge, skills, and literacies. So there is an element there that um, that we're, we're still working on a standards-based education. We're using the Massachusetts curriculum frameworks. And so what our educators are doing now is developing uh, units of instruction that take the standards, uh, that take the knowledge and skills that students need, but also weaving in these portrait of a graduate skills as well um, to make sure that um, that all of the bases are covered in terms of um, making sure students are prepared uh, for the future. You know, I was going to jump in with uh, the uh, first, I, I appreciate your honesty and transparency around some of the things that may have been missing. I think that's always essential when we do, uh, especially a post-analysis. And I, I, you know, I would say this to you, Sarah, uh, as well as any of the other employees, of the district and our entire community. When I walk in a room as a black man and I first walk in as a black man, I don't walk in with any, nobody knows my degrees or education level. They don't know my uh, uh, IQ quotient. They know nothing about me. But as soon as I walk through that threshold, the two things that people identify immediately is that there's a black man walking in the door. And and I go to to uh, uh, to now Natalia's point, those of in our society who are white, when you walk in the room, one of the things that your antenna ought to be looking for is not, oh, do I have the leaders? Do I have the thought provokers in the community? One of the first things you look at always and you have to push yourself in this regard. Do I have in this room? a reflection and a diversity of my community. That's number one. And if it's not there, especially those of us who are in leadership positions, we're obligated to do something about it. Um, And I mean to say that when I'm into a room in, uh, I'm a consultant with the higher education department in Alabama. And I tell you, when I walk in a room, if I'm the only black person there, I don't care if it's the governor, I will ask, uh, did we seek out others of people of color, of leadership positions, of businesses to be a part of this group? And over the years, I guess I've built up a, uh, a sort of a repertoire and a reputation for that so that when people see my name on the list as one of the participants, they will, <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll, hey, listen, Michael's going to ask this question, so we might as well go ahead and address it before we get there, okay? Uh, and let's take an inventory. Because if we don't, we end up in situations, I think, where people assume, oh, yeah, well, we're addressing those needs. Or after the fact, oh, God, we should have. That would have been a great opportunity, too. Uh, And I hate for us to miss opportunities like that. Uh, But again, 
the outcome, and I'm not questioning the outcome. Don't get me wrong. The outcome here in terms of the profile, uh, as Jeff was saying, uh, I think is outstanding. Uh, and Jeff, I would, if I were you, then go back to NCSL and, uh, hey, you know, ask, uh, uh, ask Dr. Ahern to come and do a presentation at next year's. Hopefully it might be a real conference <laughs> this coming fall. Uh, but, you know, but to do a presentation. Here's what's happening. The in conference is actually going on right now down in Tampa, Florida. It is. Uh, and that's not where I prefer to be. <laughs> At this stage of uh, the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> well, thanks for not inviting us then. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but uh, but for, for our listeners who don't know, NCSL is a very powerful group in this nation. It's a, uh, it's a multi-partisan group. It incorporates all of the state legislative members from all 50 states and territories. They do great work. I have, uh, on numbers of occasions, attended their conferences. I've made presentations there. Uh, and as Jeff has said, it's a very influential group that I think stands at least a little bit above the politics that the group could sort of find itself in. One additional group that I think is important to point out and is probably where we did see the most uh, racial and ethnic diversity is in the student groups that we pulled together uh, to provide input into the portrait of a graduate, um, which may not be um, super surprising in that our student population uh, is certainly see where it is certainly where we are seeing a growing amount of diversity as as the demographics uh, are are changing, and we welcome that. Um, but we had students both at the middle school and at the high school participate in providing us feedback. We had high performing students and we also had students who are at risk uh, providing us with input and feedback on the portrait of a graduate skills. And that's um, that was invaluable information and they were incredibly validating of the work. Uh, and I think overall provided some feedback too that contributed to, to a greater product. Kudos, kudos. And, you know, in the face of what I think has been an ongoing, at least, concern of both mine, both personally and as a parent, uh, I am so glad to hear that, Dr. Hurt, because uh, our students are the front line of all of our concerns, especially with regard to bullying around the growing level of diversity in our community. So kudos to you and your staff and the, and the faculty, uh, you know, around that. And I want to I want to add that congratulations. You know, I feel like students are often, you know, either brought in at the very end to rubber stamp or not at all. They're seen as sort of, you know, the recipients. And it's so amazing to hear that you intentionally brought them in early and that you did bring in students of different sort of academic. You know, it wasn't sort of rewarding just those who buy the books. On that question about, you know, you mentioned students at risk. Are there ways to sort of recognize or celebrate um, students that fill those other criteria but may not be doing well academically. Have you been kind of, you know, how do you recognize graduates who maybe exemplify these values, stand out in some way, but maybe academically, you know, are not, um, you know, has there been a shift basically in, in who you celebrate in schools? So that's a great question. 
I think one of the greatest areas where we see achievement among students, uh, but it might not necessarily fall into that traditional GPA or class rank are some of the outcomes that we see from our extracurricular uh, clubs and activities. And I actually love to frame those not as extracurriculars, but more as co-curriculars. Students learn an incredible amount through the clubs and sports and uh, music programs. And I think that there are some tremendous achievements uh, that our students are demonstrating. Uh, so we are very, very supportive of those and see those as very uh, complementary to the, the academic program uh, during the school day. Um, I'd like to, to uh, take a moment to talk about what are some of what parents I think see as the most practical thing uh, about education. Um, and uh, I want to go backwards in time uh, to be able to then reflect forward. Three points I'll offer about my own career. At this point, I would say that almost zero of my initial skills when I was starting out are applicable today. The industry that I am in is so different than the industry that I joined when I was still you know, young, wet behind the ears. And so that's one point. And along the way, I had to make many changes to what I was doing, figure out where the new opportunities were what skills that I abandoned, what skills that I need to pick up, and so on. Uh, second point, there were many of my then contemporaries, people I remember fondly when I was just starting out, good friends, and I saw a number of them sort of become static. They were doing whatever the job was that they did, and for about the first five years in their career, they sort of moved up the ladder uh, and then stagnated. Ultimately, a number of them became unemployed, fell out of the system, media system, whatever, uh, didn't know how to move forward. Um, and so uh, the third point I'll make is, as an employer, the way that I hire people has changed. That's an interesting one. In the beginning, I used to hire people with certain technical skills. Now, in order to solve technical problems, to attack what people consider to be technical and craft jobs, I'm hiring people from art school. I say that because of the fact that people who come from the visual arts or who have excellent writing skills, this communication thing you mentioned, have the innate problem-solving skills, creativity skills that I'm looking for, and that they can then take those skills to manage and learn the necessary craft skills beneath that, that they need to solve the problem. It's, I look at it as an adult version of, of what we began to understand with the Montessori learning experience. You have a project, you're going to work on something, and now you need to learn the skill set and the knowledge to be able to address that specific tack, task. So, you know, it may feel like it's a little ad hoc at the beginning, but you keep repeating, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat. You work on so many things over the course of time that you end up developing this really, really broad skill set that makes you something unique. You become a master of your own change. And I think if that is what has happened to me to date, what I love about the profile that you're painting of the graduate is, is and certainly I would encourage an underscoring of, as you graduate, as you begin with commencement, let me underscore that word, commencement, which is what it is known as, you are about to commence becoming the master of your own change. Uh, and so the fact that you talk about creativity, the fact that you talk about communication and listening, 
and the fact that you talk about problem solving as part of that profile, I think are the central ingredients that bubble up to that idea of, I'm going out there, I'm going to conquer the world, and how I succeed is primarily up to me based on the skill set I've picked up through my education. So that's my quick take on it. Let me add to that uh, some of the work that I've been engaged in in terms of workforce development. Uh, and I hope, uh, uh, Dr. Hearn, at, at some point you can uh, first listen to, because uh, I think in the future we've got a, uh, we've got a segment that we're going to do on workforce development. Uh, some of it is going to be around the myths uh, associated with people not wanting to go back to work. Uh, and we're beginning to discover that that is, uh, talk about another political football, that's another myth. People are not necessarily reluctant to go back to work, but there is a shift going on in terms of people assessing whether or not the work that I did prior to COVID is work that I want to continue or whether it's productive or lucrative enough for me to go back to. Uh, but with that comes uh, something that we've discovered in Alabama as we try to look at keeping our, uh, and I don't like the term best and brightest. I've discouraged our political folks and some of our higher ed folks from uh, referring to our effort to retain our graduates in Alabama as, a, as an attempt to retain our best and brightest, as if we don't want all of our citizens uh, to become productive in Alabama and stuff. We only want the best and brightest, which is, I think is a a totally uh, misconstrued uh, kind of image that you're building. So let's put it this way. We are trying to get our citizens uh, to see Alabama as a great place to live and work, no matter what your education level, no matter what your economic status. And we found that one of the ways to do that is through something that's described as work-based learning. And we're finding the lower we can push the opportunities for our citizens to have work-based learning experiences, the more they grow an affinity for Alabama. So we're looking at having work-based learning opportunities for uh, our high school students, our associate and undergraduate students, uh, or just citizens who are looking for a job and who are going through, whether it's vocational training or any kind of training opportunities. And we're looking at trying to develop those work-based learning uh, situations across a multiple of mediums. That is apprenticeships, internships, exploration ships, if you will. Uh, and we're finding that the more we do that, one, the more it invigorates our students and their learning from middle school on. And it also, as I said, grows an affinity for their environment, whether it's local or state. Uh, so I guess my next question is this. Uh, I know in academic uh, preparation for college, we have not looked at vocational training as an essential part of that, okay? In other words, we've separated it, which is why we have the two schools here in Franklin, our uh, vocational school and, uh, and then our K-12 school. But I think that there is a time, and this I believe is it, for us to meld more of the opportunities for those students across those two lines. Because I go to uh, the Votech school, doesn't mean that I can't go to college. And because I go to a college prep school, 
like Franklin High, doesn't mean that I can't take Votech courses. So what's the effort to try to sort of break down those silos and those barriers? Uh, I'd be real interested in, and also uh, offer you an opportunity to come join us in the future to talk about that more in depth since we're near the end of this particular program. And again, let me thank you for your not only your transparency and your forthrightness, but for all of the efforts that you and your staff, uh, the faculty and the students are putting in in Franklin. It still makes me proud to be a citizen here in terms of how our schools are so outreaching and encompassing of this community. Um, thank you for um, for the appreciation. Um, I will talk maybe briefly about uh, work-based learning opportunities, um, particularly as it relates to education. Um, and then I think some of this is uh, visionary and, and, and part of the future. Um, when you started to talk about work based learning opportunities, one of the biggest things that I thought of was uh, developing the teacher pipeline. And a big uh, effort and push is around diversifying our educator workforce. And part of the challenge in doing that um, is making sure that we have uh, diverse candidates uh, applying and wanting to work in our schools. And I think, um, you know, sometimes uh, if the school experience isn't a good one, um, that's going to be a disincentive for uh, individuals to want to become teachers and educators. Um, and so we are, um, I think that's one of the keys to change in terms of diversifying our educator workforce is making sure that there's some work-based learning opportunities to, uh, to develop uh, the next uh, generation of educators. Uh, last year, uh, the Department of Education put forward uh, some funding uh, that allowed us to create opportunities for seniors, uh, and the effort was intentional to try to identify uh, students from diverse backgrounds where they could uh, earn some, some money uh, as, and they would keep up with their uh, you know, core academics, but then uh, they would come to our elementary schools and provide some additional support at a very much needed time uh, when we were struggling to fully supervise and staff our buildings as a result of quarantine requirements in the pandemic. And we had a, a fleet of, of students um, working in our elementary schools. And this happened in multiple, multiple districts across the state. Um, and I am hopeful that uh, some of the outcomes there are that uh, these young people may pursue the education workforce and that we have uh, some more diverse candidates um, to look forward to in the future because we know how important that is um, for student uh, outcomes, um, particularly for students of color. Um, we do have a senior project program um, separate and apart from this, uh, this teacher pipeline um, pilot that we had last year. Um, the senior projects are hugely successful. Um, we have a number of students who engage in workplace opportunities uh, during the final quarter of their senior year, and they present a culminating capstone project. Uh, one of the most rewarding pieces to me was last year, seeing these senior projects and having the students connect their learning outcomes to the portrait of a graduate. Um, and it was just like everything came full circle. Yeah. Uh, I think we need to do more of that um, embedded in our regular academic program, um, really pointing out to students the opportunities that they have um, because they may not necessarily know uh, the, the wealth of careers and opportunities that they have to them. Uh, I think uh, future work-based learning opportunities um, are 
uh, an aspiration. I know that there's some grant funding through the state uh, to support some uh, some work based learning opportunities and some additional vocational opportunities for for students uh, and indeed um, just uh, because you go to a vocational school there are so many students coming out of vocational schools uh, attending college uh, and pursuing those goals uh, and we uh, also should be providing uh, students uh, at franklin high school with opportunities for uh, that um, that work-based uh, work learning opportunities um, so that they can kind of tangibly uh, get connected um, with the future. Um, so those are a couple of things that are happening, um, but I think also uh, a recognition that um, we can be doing more. I'd like to take a moment to focus. Uh, everyone at this point knows that there was a lot of scrambling, a lot of adjustments that had to be made on the fly as COVID rose up over the last couple of years, and it just you know forever changed the landscape. I think what is perhaps less known, or maybe even less appreciated, is the fact that as we now look forward, and that's the key, look forward to post-pandemic life, where we are going, what the, because that constitutes another layer of change. Um, just as this morning we're all on a Zoom call, which obviously is you know, a new permanent change for all of us as to how we communicate. Education itself is, uh, you know, through good works like Sarah, now has to swivel around and look forward over the next year to five years, start planning, considering, you know, what is the upside of post-pandemic life? How do we incorporate that in the day-to-day -day of things? So I wouldn't mind getting a snapshot as to where you think at this point, Sarah, things are headed and uh, how it is that uh, the Franklin school system might be proactive about helping us get there sooner than later. So one of the things that my mind jumps to with that question is, I guess, what maybe hasn't changed first or what we learned from the pandemic, which is the value of the relationships between students and teachers or students and counselors. And um, to have students come back this year, um, so ready to be back in school, uh, wanting to be back in school, an appreciation for school, an appreciation for their peers, an appreciation for their teachers, um, you know, being, you know, being willing to wear a mask. We've heard that from a lot of students. If it means I can go back to school, I'll wear a mask. Um, and just that is something that I think uh, that appreciation came from the pandemic. I think there had been previously uh, maybe some cynicism or uh, lamenting about school being a chore and something that you had to do, but realizing and, and, and appreciating and valuing the relationships that are developed in the school building. Prior to the pandemic, I think that there was a lot of questions about online learning and um, online courses and some fear uh, among the teachers and, and teaching profession that, you know, computer programs or online learning was going to somehow squeeze out a live instructor. We've learned certainly that there are some things that technology can do and can do better than uh, a person. One of the things that I talked about earlier in this program was the adaptive assessment that we're doing that really can hone in on a student's skill set. That would take a teacher just an exorbitant amount of time and they would not be able to, to do that in a quick and actionable way. Um, so I think we've learned some of the places where technology can, uh, can help us and we can leverage it, its use. 
um, so that we can maximize those relationships and that in-person learning. Um, so those are some of the lessons that I think we're reflecting upon and thinking about as we move forward in the future. As we design these learning experiences, how do we you know, leverage the skills that we've learned in terms of uh, instructional technology? I think technology um, also has created um, some additional access to education, um, whether it's on the part of students, but I'm thinking on the part particularly of community and families. Uh, we're approaching parent-teacher conferences next week. Parent-teacher conferences will be uh, an option for in-person or via Zoom. And so this is creating a lot more access to, uh, to families, to working families, um, to those who don't have transportation, uh, for example. Uh, if they have uh, a phone, a cell phone, they can participate in a virtual conference um, with, with the teacher. Um, certainly, uh, it, the pandemic has pointed out um, a tremendous number of inequities uh, in school. I think that is one of the, the biggest areas that we're aiming to address through, um, for example, a guaranteed and viable curriculum across, uh, across all of our schools. Um, one of the biggest um, one of the biggest things that I think is coming out of the pandemic, uh, and it was a trend that that started going into the pandemic, which is um, schools are more than reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, students are presenting with greater needs. Uh, this had been happening before the pandemic, and is certainly true after the pandemic. And um, and the social supports. Uh, are increasingly uh, coming coming into the schools. Um, I'm thinking about mental health, mental health screening. Um, we now have, um, we've done vaccine clinics uh, for students. There's a, a lot of demands on, uh, on our nurses and, and the healthcare environment uh, within schools. Um, we are, uh, and continuing to partner with the Franklin Food Pantry uh, to provide, um, uh, food uh, for uh, food insecure families. Uh, we are doing more coordination of wraparound services with agencies in the community. And uh, again, this was a trend that was happening uh, going into the pandemic and is certainly, certainly true coming out. And I, I'm incredibly appreciative and grateful of the support that we have um, through funding to both the schools and the town um, around things like public health. Um, but you know, I, I see this as being a trend going into the future, um, and and that is that schools are um, that schools are um, really becoming comprehensive supports for students. Um, our core mission is around education, but um, but we are uh, we are doing so much more uh, to to support these uh, expanded needs. You know, challenge I think was so felt by parents who had to take on that educator role last year and. I think it was invisible to many of us before that. I think that's a great point. Um, we do have a very strong um, English language uh, development uh, department uh, who does a tremendous amount of outreach. We um, are very active in translating all of our written communications. Um, I think technology has really helped uh, in that regard. Um, and we have uh, an interpreter service and we've become much more explicit about providing uh, opportunities for people uh, who come into our offices to, uh, you know, kind of quickly. Uh, it used to be you have to had to make an appointment and get an interpreter and, and there were some 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 hurdles, um, but now it is a phone call away. So people come into our office, uh, for example, here uh, to register and we can uh, quickly dial up an interpreter and, and get some communication going there. We have tried um, through policies uh, to um, 
can I help level the playing field a little bit? Um, one one uh, that I'm thinking about now, which is more, I think it was pre-pandemic and then future facing as well as around our homework policy um, to recognize that um, not uh, all families might be able to help. And I think this particularly relates at the elementary level. Um, not all families may have the same skill set would be to be able to help with with homework. And so our homework policy is written uh, with an eye towards equity and making sure that um, students are um, really receiving the instruction they need and the support they need in school, uh, understanding that um, that 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 uh, students uh, have uh, home environments that might not be uh, that might not be as as helpful to their academic uh, growth. Um, I think, though, that doesn't necessarily answer your question about what more could we do to empower families. Uh, and I think that that's a that's a question that I will take back and mull over because I think um, that would be, uh, you know, I think that would be the ultimate goal is to uh, invite invite families in and partnering with us uh, to support uh, to support student learning. Um, we're not perfect. We have uh, we have uh, some some things to consider and think about going forward. Uh, but the pandemic certainly pointed that out. And in some regards, we um, we um, we had to um, we had to do hybrid learning and have some of that learning happening at home. But we did have students coming in to school uh, four days a week, uh, for example. Um, you know, and and principals developing those relationships with students and developing those relationships with families could identify um, the students that needed to be in four days a week and would benefit. And we did our best um, to to accommodate that. Sarah, thank you for joining us today and shedding some light on exactly what it is that's going on. And I hope that what everyone heard is that there is a very complex, perhaps somewhat nuanced set of considerations that keep on expanding in terms of what it takes to manage a modern day educational system uh, that keeps on growing and expanding and becoming ever more complex. And I, for one, you know, believe wholeheartedly that uh, folks like Sarah are more than up for the challenge. So A, thanks. B, congratulations for what has been a couple of pretty horrific years filled with extremely difficult choices. And I'm hoping that whatever the new normal is, that we find our way into more peaceful waters and more progress. And that said, thanks for being with us today. I'm Peter Jay, along with Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Representative Jeff Roy. So once again, you've had an opportunity to hear, to hear from your fan base. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to having you on again. As we continue on our journey toward a more perfect union, I'm Peter J. Thanks for joining us.